Welcome to the Pursuit of Wellbeing podcast. My name's Maria Brosnan. I'm the founder of Pursuit and your host for the show. This podcast is dedicated to providing well-being information, inspiration, and support for teachers, leaders, and school staff around the world. My guest today is Hannah Wilson. Hannah is a former executive head teacher and currently a leadership development consultant, coach, and facilitator. She's a Department for Education coach for the Women Leading in Education initiative and an advocate for flexible working, the focus of her master's in education. She specializes in diversity, inclusion and equality, professional learning, early career teachers, and mental health and well-being. Hannah is a collaborator across a number of networks, including those she co-founded, such as Women Ed and Diverse Ed. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Maria. Absolute pleasure. I was looking on your website and reading through some of your blogs ahead of doing our, our podcast today. And I and one struck me was regaining your mojo. And I looked up the word mojo because it's one of those words that you know what it means. But I thought, what where does it come from? And and the definition I found is your mojo is your personal power or influence over other people. And another way of saying that is an uncanny personal power or influence or even the art of casting magical spells, which I think is um, perhaps another podcast. But but in your in your blog, you said I've lost my mojo over over various periods in your life and career. And you said when this happens, I can feel depleted, overwhelmed, stressed out tired, bored, or lethargic at times. Once I lose my mojo, it can be hard to find the motivation to reclaim it. But I can't remain in that mojo-less place for too long because that's where my mental health and well-being will begin to suffer. So I'm certain that many people listening to this podcast today will be feeling mojo-less. What would you say to them? Well, thanks for picking up that blog. So uh, Regaining a Mojo is actually the name of one of the programmes I run. So I um, trained, I was accredited as a resilient leadership coach last year, and I've got a suite of um, different programmes I run. And lots of people come to me for coaching, and they don't necessarily know why they need coaching but they know they need coaching. Like, you know, it's, it's like, I'm here for a reason, but I need your help. But I'm not quite sure exactly what it is I need my help with. And when we begin to explore it and unpack it, it's quite often this idea of just like either feeling overwhelmed or feeling rudderless. And, mm-hmm. and that kind of like, so either feeling trapped or feeling like I haven't got parameters around who I am and what I'm doing. Um, and it just always really resonates with me. Like I'm, I'm a, a very instinctive and very decisive, decisive person. But at moments of my career, I have got to this point where I've had to make quite a like a decisive reactive decision about I need to change something. And when I change something, I tend to throw it all up in the air and do like big changes. Um, and and when you then reflect retrospectively over your personal and professional journeys, you begin to sort of like track these patterns. So when um, myself and my colleague Mandy were launching that programme, we both pledged to do a, pl- a blog about our own relationship with our mojo. And it just really made me go introspective about like can I pinpoint how often has this happened and I shared some quite personal stuff in that blog about like breakups with ex-boyfriends or sort of fallouts with bosses and like you can almost like begin to pinpoint these milestones throughout your throughout your sort of like your journey so going back to the original question like doing what, what are the tips for me it's the creating the opportunity to reflect and I think a lot of people will be feeling modulus at the moment because we've had a year of massive disruption. We've had a year of spending much more time with ourselves, much more time in silence, much more time like 
thinking about who we are, what we're doing, are we happy? What fulfills us? One of my big questions is for my condo, like what brings me joy? If it's not bringing me joy, why am I doing it? Um, so I think that's where this program has really resonated with me. And it's all structured around this idea of the Ikigai and the kind of a, that Japanese sense of your sweet spot and your sweet spot in the middle of, of your different facets of your life and your identity. And I guess since I've left headship, I've done a lot of work on me and a lot of work on who I am and what I believe in. And I've had to shed quite a lot of my identity because when you've been a teacher for your whole life and that's how you introduce yourself and it's a currency and everyone knows what it is to be a head teacher or a teacher. And then suddenly you're not that person. Like I had to do a lot of work on how do I now introduce myself? What's my job title? Like what am I leading with? What defines who I am? And one of the intersects we look at in our coaching model is this idea, this overlap between who I am and what I do and how a lot of our identity is completely wrapped up in what I do. And we forget about the importance of who I am. So I guess for me, the mojo is that kind of that sweet spot, that collision, that positive collision of all these different facets of what I care about, what I enjoy doing and how can I actually carve out a way of being that brings all that together, like that kind of that purpose and that passion and that fulfillment. And, and I do feel really lucky and really privileged to now be being paid to do what I care about. Um, and I've kind of curated that portfolio of things that I want to be spending my time doing. And you make, you make a fantastic point, Hannah, that it's it's been a real time of reflection or the opposite of that for many people, especially teachers and, and heads that have got children at home themselves that have had absolutely no time for reflection and, you know, working all hours or or taking care of their own children and families or having other caring responsibilities. So it's been, for many people, it's been the opposite of that time of reflection where it feels like there's just no space at all. And what would you say to them when they're when they're feeling modulous and there just isn't the headspace to to even consider options? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's the lack of space and the lack of time. But what you said there about the lack of headspace as well. For me, re headspace you have to you have to carve out that time for headspace. So whether it's mindfulness or meditation or walking or yoga or reflective writing or painting, whatever it is, you need you need to find an outlet physically, creatively, where you can give yourself that processing. And, and I mean, I, I did a lot of coaching in that first lockdown around emotional regulation with people, because when, when you're primed to be co-regulated, and I think a lot of educators are used to co-regulating each other, you have a bad lesson, you bump into someone in the corridor or on playground duty, you talk it out you calibrate yourself you go back into your next lesson and, and we're social beings like I know there's introverts who are educators but you are used to being with people all day every day and then suddenly to go to being at home either with your family or by yourself for a prolonged amount of time I think a lot of people struggled with being used to being co-regulated and suddenly having to be self-regulators mm. and I've always been a self-regulator I was a thumbsucker as a child and I think there's research out there about thumbsuckers being self-regulators and I've always I've always been able to do that myself so I didn't struggle in in, in the lockdowns but I really saw a lot of um, people in my network like really have emotional meltdowns and also get very frustrated with the fact that the things that normally served them weren't serving them and I had to keep having the conversation with them, but that, that those things serve you in your normal life. Like we're not now in our normal existence. So we need, we need a different toolkit. We need a different set of resources. So we had a lot of conversations about the kind of the habits, the rituals, the routines, the spaces we needed to create. 
and I, and I don't mean this as a criticism, but a, a lot of people say I haven't got the time. And my challenge is we need to make the time. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be, it's self-discipline. It's a habit. It's a commitment. And one of the things I'm really good at is time management. And my diary is a work of art. It is beautiful. <laughs> it's, beautiful it's beautifully colour-coded. And I'm really intentional about putting colour in for me. So yellow is my well-being colour. So I can see that every morning I have breakfast, every, every day I have lunch break, I go for a walk, I have my evenings off, my weekends off. And I can see at a glance across a week, across a month, whether I've got enough me time. And my friends used to tease me. When I was in London, I had quite a hectic job and quite a hectic social life. And I had to put me into my diary. Otherwise, I'd do something every night and I'd get completely knackered and depleted. And when my friends would say to me, what are you doing on Thursday night? And I'd say, well, it's a Hannah night. Who's Hannah? I'm Hannah. What do you mean every night with you? And I was like, but I need a night in. I can't cope going out every night. I'll be knackered for work. So for me, it's about that kind of like putting those boundaries, those parameters, those commitments in there of the things you need. And one of the things I need is to write. Like writing is one of my cathartic processes. And my way of getting through the lockdowns was I blogged every day. So every morning at half seven, I got up and I wrote a blog. And that was my way of anchoring myself, my, my way of processing how I was thinking and feeling. And that was my way of clearing my head as well. Because I think sometimes we hold so much mentally, that's exhausting. And whether it's journaling or just scribbling things down, I, I like to just bang it out in a blog. That was my way of almost kind of like getting it out of my body. I love that idea of um, quieting our minds in some way, and and there there are so many different ways to do that. And and one one word that I've been really playing with a lot lately is the idea of rest, because there are so many different ways to rest. And one of the hardest ones I think people find is mental rest, because we've mostly got very busy minds. And we think that the opposite of that is having a quiet mind, so sitting quietly to meditate or practice some mindfulness. It's actually an incredibly difficult time <laughs> to quiet your mind. So there are other lovely ways of quieting our minds, as you described. So journaling, writing, uh, you know, other creative outlets can be so helpful in quieting down our busy minds and helping us um, self-regulate, which is another fantastic theme. So you talked about boundaries there. How do you talk about boundaries? Because I, I find that so much in the work I do with teachers and leaders that that they're difficult things to put into place. How do you guide people into creating healthy boundaries? We have to learn to say no. Yes. Which, I mean, no is such a powerful word. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I've always been quite good at saying no. And I don't always make myself popular by saying no. But my, my reframe to people who struggle with saying no is... Every time you say yes to someone else, you're saying no to yourself. And we need to say yes to ourselves and no to other things. Um, and it's about, like, I am quite an assertive person I, and, I, and I, don't, I don't shy away from being assertive. So I've coached a lot of people on being empowered to say no or not yet or not right now or doing that transactional negotiation of, okay, so you want me to do that. I can do that. But which of these 99 things on my to-do list should I, should I not do? So for me, it's about like really holding your ground about some of those things and and that all those ideas about like everyone's urgent I I've always been very disciplined and and quite time and energy efficient with my own work like I've got a very high capacity for work I can get through quite a lot like work really quickly 
but I'm also really strict on the boundaries that work around that and I've got a lot better at that I'm not saying I've always been good at that I've had to consciously work on it because I was an absolute workaholic in my like late 20s early 30s um so I've had to really step back and like put those boundaries in and I think one of the boundaries that I've really consciously worked on in the last couple of years is my social media one mm-hmm. because I I've got a really big profile on LinkedIn and Twitter and it's like my notifications are constantly going and I choose when I respond to emails and I choose when I go onto social media, but I've got much more disciplined about it. But I've had to discipline other people around it because I cannot tell you how many times I get a, I get a DM on Twitter at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night asking me to do some work in two weeks time. Mm-hmm. And if I respond, they'll do it again. So I, I constantly am pushing back on a communications point of view via WhatsApp and, and via social media. If it's about work, you can message me whenever you want. Please email me. And when I log in at nine o'clock on Monday morning, I will then look at it. I will respond to it. And I'm really quick on email. I turn things around really quickly, but I don't, I don't really like or appreciate being contacted out of hours on social media. And I've got a massive network of educators. Like a lot of my friends are, are head teachers, next head teachers, and they're cheeky because they'll, they'll WhatsApp me because it's Han. I'm, I'm their mate. And they'll WhatsApp me at 11 o'clock and say, Han, can I ask you a question about DEI? I'm like, you can, but can you email me? And they're like, what? I'm your mate. I said, I don't care if you're mate. I've got a lot of mates. It's like, I'm watching TV. I'm in the bath. I'm going to bed. Like, So for me, it's like, if you don't put those boundaries in yourself, no one else will put those boundaries in for you. And I think re- reinforcing those boundaries and reaffirming them is really important. Um, and that's something that I do repeatedly. And lots of my friends do know I'm very good at boundaries. It's a bit of a tongue in cheek thing they tease me with. But for me, like, I need my sleep. I need my quiet time. I need my me time. Um, and those boundaries are really important to preserve my energy. And my other one, like I'm really boundaries about sleep. I go to bed at 10 o'clock every night. I sleep eight hours every night. Um, I, I'm not someone who stays up late for the sake of staying up late. Like, so for me, it's about that, like knowing what you need and making sure you're putting yourself first in many ways to, so that you can show up and be the best version of you. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent, and it's and it really is about your values and priorities and boundaries and and finding a way to say no. I love that if you say yes to others, you're saying no to yourself. Yes, good, very good reframe, and I hope <laughs> I hope our listeners take that on board. So you're known, Hannah, for your work around diversity and intersectionality. Firstly, could you define that word, perhaps, for people that might not know it, but. Uh, but moving on from that, how do we create an inclusive and safe space in school? So diversity, equity, inclusion are, are things I'm really, really passionate about. I, some people might know me from Women Ed. So six years ago, I co-founded Women Ed, and Women Ed is all about gender equality. But the conversations moved on, and my thinking moved on to think about a wider suite of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because as a straight, white, able-bodied woman who's not got children, I'm not married, like. When you look at the nine protected characteristics in the Equalities Act from 2010, I've only got one of them. So I've only got one barrier that I've had to navigate. And yes, I'm a woman in a female-heavy profession with male-heavy leadership, but I'm also six foot one. I'm really confident. So I've, I've managed to navigate it quite well. Um, and I think through the women-ed conversations and the community that grew around me, I learnt more and more about other people's lived experiences. So I've been really privileged to sit in, in rooms with like 100 people of colour, sharing their experience of racism in the education system, supporting LGBTQI, supporting people with disabilities, and understanding a different, a different situation, a different identity, a different lived experience. 
And then the intersectionality is that where you have multiple layers to your identity. So the reason why we co-founded Diverse Ed was because my deputy head, Benny Carver, who many people would know, she's just written a book called The Little Guide to Diversity in Schools. She came to me one day when I was head and she was deputy and she just said, like, Hannah, it's ridiculous. I can't keep going to all these Saturday conferences. I said, well, I don't go. And she said, but I have to. I said, we don't. It's a choice. And she said, well, it's a choice for you because you're a white woman. You don't have to go to one of them. I'm a brown woman. I'm a bisexual woman. I've got a disability. Like, I've got to go to four of them. Can't we just have one event where we talk about our whole selves? And it was literally a casual coffee chat, break time one day a few years ago. And I said, and it was a real, like, check my own privilege kind of moment that I don't have to make that choice. I've only got women to go to. So that's why I initiated Diverse Ed. And it started off as an event at our school every January. A couple of hundred people would come um, and that worked for four years. And then I launched the Twitter handle because people wanted to stay connected. And then when I left Headship, and this has all happened like literally in the last sort of 12 months, when I left Headship and trained to be a coach and I was redefining who I am and what I do, and what, what, what impact can I have? What value can I add to the school system? Um, and I, hadn't, I was still kind of like reframing. And with everything that happened last summer, like in the midst of lockdown, George Floyd gets murdered. Suddenly we've got diversity, equity, inclusion being talked about on a global platform. It's on every news channel, every social media platform. And the school system suddenly wakes up and thinks, oh gosh, we better do something about this. But no one really knows what they need to do. And I've got a network of, of school leaders like myself who have done this work for a while, who have been committed to it, who was doing it before it was trendy. And we had conversations about like, if we don't put ourselves out there as being supporters, advisors, guidance for the schools, then, then it's, it could go horribly wrong. So that's when we literally launched the Diverse Educators website last summer. So it went live in, on September the 1st. Um, and the idea is it's structured around the Equalities Act. So you think about as an institution or as an individual, what are our blind spots? And one of my blind spots was gender reassignment. I mean, like I've, only, I've only worked with a couple of young people who, who are, are non-binary or, or sort of transgender. So I didn't know loads about that. So on our website, you can go to that section and it's got 12 organisations who are groups training in that space so it's a portal really for schools to be signposted out to 110 organizations now and I've also got a blog and literally every other day I put out a blog from someone who's got a diverse background sharing their lived experience or sharing the work they're doing in their schools to diversify their curriculum or, or their policies and their practices so it's it's a bit of a snowball it's picking up a lot of pace so going back to the question about sort of like creating safety I care about mental health and well-being and I care about diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think it's really important for us to think about the intersect of those two pieces because you tend to have someone in a school who's leading on the culture and the mental health and well-being. And then you might not have someone who's leading on diversity, equity, inclusion. But when you look at the data, the people who are most vulnerable to having a mental health issue are people with protected characteristics. So if you think about like the suicide rates, the, the, the kind of the self-harm rates, the anxiety rates, quite often it stems back to somebody's lived experience, someone's inability to be authentic because they're not in a safe space where they can be LGBTQI, for example, or they've, they've internalised prejudice, discrimination, um, injustice they've experienced over time. Um, and, 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 and that is something that then is manifesting itself in a different way. And people don't necessarily make the link between all of that. Mm. So in a lot of our programmes, we think about how can we create a sense of belonging in our schools for everybody. We're so child-centred in schools, but what about the staff? 
And then how can we create psychological safety for everybody in our schools? We have safe spaces for our young people, but do we have safe spaces for our adults? Um, so, so it's kind of like that cohesive, coherent, joined up thinking, joined up conversations is, is what I think is really important. And what are some practical ideas, Hannah, for somebody that's listening to this thing? Okay, I want to create a psychologically safe place in, in our school. What is even a process to start thinking about these things? Listening. We have to create listening schools. I, I just think one of the biggest problems in our school system is that we've got a lot of talkers and not a lot of listeners. And I don't think we're necessarily listening to the right people and we're quite often not asking the right questions. So, I mean, this work is not, it's not easy work. It, it, it's, there's, it's uncomfortable work. When you really get under the skin of your culture in your school, we all like to think that everyone feels safe and we all like to think that everyone's got a sense of belonging. But the reality check is we've got groups of people who are marginalised and groups of people who don't feel safe. But we tend to like not ask those people what's going on and why they feel like that. So to give an example, like we, I think we do exit strategy interviews so badly in the school system because once someone tells us they've got another job and they're leaving we don't really care we just move on we replace them but actually are we asking those people why they're leaving and when you look at the attrition data for the sector you have got trends appearing we've got demographic groups who are voting with their feet and not only sort of like groups across the whole system but at particular tiers if we think about sort of like who leaves at middle leadership who leaves at senior leadership who leaves at headship there's, the data tells a story, but we're not looking at the story the data tells us. And when everyone bangs on all the time about we've got a recruitment crisis in education, we haven't. We've got a retention crisis. We are not. We are training teachers. We're not holding on to teachers because our school cultures, our school system does not enable everybody to flourish and thrive. And I think we, we have to stop and pause and, and reflect and ask ourselves some some difficult questions and we need to then create those spaces in our schools to have those conversations where we're going to find out things we don't want to hear we're going to lift up stones and discover some of the skeletons in the closet that are deep unpleasant because we have got institutional racism we have got people who feel unsafe to share their sexual identity within within a school context but what we're going to do about it And, and i think that's that's where I hope we are getting to as a system that we've got a spotlight on race, but race is one of the nine. And I think a lot of schools are leading with anti-racism, but how can you be anti-racist, not anti-transphobic and not anti-homophobic and not anti-disabledist? Like for me, it's a whole suite of how do we go about creating inclusive policies, inclusive, inclusive practices and inclusive cultures within our schools? Because what's happened since June is that a lot of schools have committed to diversity and they're intentionally recruiting more diverse people, but are they changing their cultures and their behaviours? Are they being intentional about how to include diversity or is it tokenistic and, and surface level? So for me, there's, there's a real process we need to go through for the next couple of years of being deliberate, but doing, doing diversity by design. I've been, I've been reading quite a lot about CQ, so cultural, inte- cultural intelligence. Like we always talk about IQ and EQ, but thinking about sort of like how can we go through a design thinking process, a discovery process of of like what's the drive for diversity? What what's the behaviours we need? What are the policies and practices we need? What's the what are the actions we need? And then what what is the kind of the ultimate impact and outcome we're trying to achieve here? And I, and I don't think we necessarily apply those kind of processes to the things that are less tangible. And culture is not always a tangible thing. 
So I, so I think there's a big piece of work here for us as a school system and individual schools to really think about the culture and the ethos of the organisations that we co-create and co-lead. Yeah, so many, so many things in there we could pull out, Hannah. Um, one one thing that stood out for me was that you said there there is enough. There's a lot of data around the uh, retention crisis. So there are different patterns of when people leave, say middle leadership or or senior leadership or headship. Can you expand on that just a little bit? What are some of those um, pinch points or reasons why people leave at those different times? So, so this is all anecdotal. I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm an English teacher, I'm a words person rather than a numbers person. So oh, sure. a- anecdotally, okay, so I know one of the stats is we've got 250,000 qualified teachers in the country not working in our schools. They've left. Mm. 250,000. I think that number's staggering. Okay, yeah. And a high proportion of them are women between 30 and 39. Women between 30 and 39 who were teachers, full-time teachers, who left to have children, who asked for part-time job share, flexible working, that was denied, or they were told that they had to relinquish their responsibility to go part-time, so they decided to leave teaching. So if we thought about flexible working as a recruitment tool rather than a retention tool, which is what a lot of schools do, we could actually entice some really experienced, mature, qualified teachers back into the system. So that's one stat that I think is really important. And there's there's lots of research about when you, as an organisation, commit to flexible working and you name it, you make it explicit in your adverts and, and your job specs and your personal, personal descriptions, you get more people, more diverse people applying to work in that school. And as a head, I definitely found that. Um Things like thinking about kind of like structural systemic barriers, like the glass ceiling for women in education is very much like deputy headship. So we're female heavy and then you you get sort of maler as you get higher up the school. And a lot of women get to assistant head or deputy head, but don't get to head teacher or they get to a head of school role with a male executive head or principal above them. So that's so that's a kind of a, a barrier for female progression. And then for people of colour, the, the kind of the concrete ceiling, that's lower. It's more just above middle leadership level. So it's really hard to break through the middle leadership barrier as a person of colour to get onto SLT. Once you get onto SLT, you're more likely to progress from assistant head to deputy head and potentially onto headship. But but statistically from the BAME community. The last statistic I read was that 14% of the country identifies being BAME, but only 11% of teachers are BAME, but only 2% of head teachers are BAME. Mm-hmm. There are only three boarding school heads in the country who aren't white. Do you mean the statistics, are, they're really not good enough. And, mm-hmm. and, and not only do we not reflect the current communities we serve, if we think about the national demographic data, but our primary schools are becoming more and more diverse because we've got more biracial families, more dual heritage um, relationships. I think it's 24% of pupils in primary schools are not white. So that gap's going to get bigger, not smaller, between the representation of who's teaching and who's leading. Um, and another data point that I've heard about recently, but which, which is, I think it's interesting, it's not shared widely, is like if we think about who actually applies to become a teacher, we get a report every year on who's being trained and who's stepping into the profession. And then we find out who leaves after three years and five years. And like 36% of teachers leave after three and 50% leave after five But when you granulate it, you look at which groups are leaving. There's some interesting stories there about demographic data. But we don't necessarily report on the who applied and didn't get onto a programme. And there's a stat around the fact that a white man, get 10 white men get offered a place to every man of colour. 
So when, when, when we think about the narrative that, oh, well, the people who aren't white don't want to teach. They want to be doctors. They want to be dentists. Like there's, there's these kind of like folklores that get perpetuated about some cultures don't value teaching. That's not necessarily the case. We have got people of colour applying to teach who are not being offered a place on a PGC or on a skip pathway, but that data is not explicit because they haven't actually made it onto the programme. So that, that to me is deeply problematic as well. And and I do a lot of work around the kind of the diversification of ITTE, but also governance, like the kind of the top and tail of the sector. Um, and we've been talking about the fact that you can't even point that finger at the course leader, like because we have got a very female heavy PGCE model and an ITTE model. It quite often that person hasn't even got past admin. So we've got some sort of like some some institutional racism happening in the process. In like they're not even getting to interview. So there's things I can see by your face that you're quite shocked by this. But like they, like yeah. th- these these are the stories that aren't being shared, Maria, because yeah. because it's kind of the data that's not explicit and isn't being overtly yeah. talked about. Because actually, the more and more data that comes to my attention, I literally get emails and DMs on a weekly basis where people say, "How have you seen this? How have you read this?" It's it's really disheartening, and I'm a white person, and it, it really we really need to hold a mirror up to ourselves and and get under some of these deep problems within the sector. The the expression "hold a mirror up" is often a very very painful thing to do. But what else can we do? I mean, some of the things you've just said are just horrifying. In your coaching framework, the resilient leadership coaching framework, how how are you approaching this, or what what would you suggest to people listening to this? Well, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I'm really mindful, and I don't ever want to sort of like communicate the fact that we just need to be resilient to all the ills of the world. Because mm. I mean, yes, we need to be resilient, but there's some things we should not be resilient to. And mm. and a lot of my um, coaching clientele are women. Quite often, um, women like deputy heads, heads, um, CEOs. Um, and they're, they're, I call my um, coaching interpretation of R-E-A-L, I call it R-E-A-L, real. So resilient, empowered, authentic leaders. And, and it's about supporting people to be resilient, but to be empowered. And like going back to that saying yes, saying no, knowing your boundaries, like being empowered to know your rights, being empowered to use your voice, being empowered to ask for what you need. Because I think so many women don't do that. And that creates well-being issues because we internalise it and then we implode. Um, and that authenticity piece speaks to the diversity, equity, inclusion. Like, rather than us squishing ourselves into moulds for leadership that are that are male formed, Jermaine Greer talks about it, doesn't she? She, she? she says we need to recreate the leadership mould to fit a female body rather than shoehorning female bodies into male shapes. And I think I've always. I've always managed to navigate that quite well, but I do think it's because I'm really tall and really confident. Um, and, I've, and I've reflected on that quite a lot. The, the, and I'm also an Aries. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's quite a few things in my identity, my personality. So people tend to gravitate towards me for coaching because they want to be more resilient. Um, and the resilient leadership framework, so it, like I, I just love it as a coaching framework because you do a self-assessment and it gives you a pictorial view of yourself and it maps you across these 12 facets. And like one of one of the groups of facets, the elements called awareness. And you look at yourself from your awareness of self, your awareness of others, and your awareness of the environment. So then you can see, like you can amplify, well, actually, my awareness of self needs some work. I'm really aware of other people. Because a lot of women tend to be all about meeting the needs of others and not putting ourselves first. So then you get thrown challenges through the system that make you focus on and commit to increasing your self-awareness. So that's kind of like part one of it. And then part two is there's a strengths engine. 
because we tend to be so harsh on ourselves like the like the inner critic is so loud that we we tend to diminish and deplete the things we're good at and we and what it does is it makes you affirm what your strengths are and amplify them and it helps you create a mantra so that kind of like leadership affirmation of the leader you know you are but the leader you're becoming so that's a really powerful tool that I love using and then there's a feedback engine so you basically kind of get a 360 feedback where you then get an overlay between how you see yourself and how you how people around you see you and quite often I've got a few men who I coach quite often men are slightly overconfident in some of those facets and women are underconfident and then you can coach to some of those blind spots of like why are the 12 people who gave you that feedback all thinking that you're really good at this but you can't see you're good at this like so it, so it, it gives you almost a bit of evidence to have those conversations with that I tend to be quite an intuitive coach and go on quite a lot of hunches but actually when you've got a picture there in front of you of what everyone's telling the coachee about themselves, it's it, it's really impactful. Amazing. As we're starting to wrap up, is there anything you'd like to say, any final points you'd like to make sure we cover before we wrap up? Oh, gosh. Um, we, well-being. I think we have to all accept the fact we are works in progress. And I was a teacher for 19 years. I turned 42 last weekend. I have done a lot of work on me. And one of the expressions we use um, in our diversity, equity, inclusion work is doing the inner work to do the outer work. And I think that's that sort of sits true with me, re well-being as well, that it's not selfish to spend time on you. It's not selfish to work out what you need and to carve out that time in your own diary to to really make sure that you are decompressing and that you are reflecting and that you can um, calibrate yourself because then the person who goes out to do your role is a much stronger, more grounded version of you. And I think that's something I've I've always done sort of like inadvertently, but I've become more intentional about it. I've become more um, sort of aware of it, shall we say. And I think coaching to me, I, I started being coached when I was a deputy head I was deeply unhappy. It's one of the times when I'd lost my mojo. I couldn't quite work out why I was unhappy, apart from the fact I'd broken up with a dodgy boyfriend. Um, but professionally, I wasn't very happy either. And the coach really helped me unpack why I was feeling unfulfilled. Um, and I think I've, that's where I've embraced coaching ever since. That was like sort of eight years ago. And at that moment, it was because my values were being compromised. And I knew I was values led, but I didn't necessarily articulate my values very clearly. And that coaching process back then really helped me surface and hold on to my core values. And my core values then helped guide me then through the rest of my career. And I talk about values in lots of my blogs and lots of my training, but I also talk about non-negotiables. And I think being really clear on what your values are and how your values shape who you are and how you show up and what you stand up for and what you speak out on. I think that's a really important work, piece of work to do. But equally then establishing those boundaries, those non-negotiables of where is the line? What things will you not tolerate? Where, when will you do the whistleblowing? Because I've done that several times. When will you resign? When, when will you walk away from a relationship or a friendship or, or, a, or kind of a role? So for me, it's about having that cl- absolute clarity around you about who you are, what you do, and, and why you do it. Powerful stuff and a, and a great way to regain your mojo. <laughs> Indeed. Come full circle. Hannah, thank you so much 
for a wonderful conversation. I've been speaking with Hannah Wilson. You can connect with Hannah on Twitter at ethical underscore leader. And her website is hannah-wilson.co.uk. And if uh, you, the, the details are in our show notes. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you, Helen Maria. Thanks so much for listening. Now check out our website, pursuitwellbeing.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I love getting your feedback and learning how we can improve our program.